I know it's not improper for us to dance. It hardly is a scandal, and Miss Bates has no opinion. And though we are related by circumstance, you are not my sister, and I'm surely not your brother. Though my brother and your sister have three children, it's confusing. Emma, I'm helpless in your grace. I see your kindred face when I close my eyes. Emma, the dawn breaks with your smile, and for just a while I am comforted. And if I never hold you, if I never touch you, if I never have the chance to quite express what I'm most hopeful of, then I, I will never know. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 11th, 2018. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select in many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi, good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at Files But Photo. Good morning, Michael. Good morning and welcome back, James. And I, I've just I was expecting maybe that you are going to be talking in the <laughs> podcast like this because you have been in France. Well, I tell you, I had a wonderful trip to France and uh, to Paris, and um, I really appreciate Matt uh, taking over responsibilities here uh, last week. It, I, I I thought to myself when I, I listened uh, on the plane ride back. Uh, that it was a great show, and, and in fact, uh, I, I had mentioned to Matt, I was like, "Matt, you you're really good at this. You, you should take it over full time, so I could sleep in on Sunday mornings." <laughs> and Matt right, uh, did... politely Go declined. <laughs> All right, here's the jackpot question in advance. Did you see a show over there? I did not, but what I um, did do yeah, yeah. is I went to the Paris Opera House. Okay, and... good. And have you have has, have yeah, you been have. to the Paris Opera? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is how it should be done. Yeah. It's just unbelievably gorgeous, and uh, I we really had a a wonderful wonderful time there. Um, I have a friend in the Paris Opera Ballet, so that is his um, workplace. Oh. <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, and uh, in the Paris Opera House, uh, it seems that they have lots and lots of things going on, not just opera, as Michael just mentioned in the ballet. Uh, they, they, uh, what is playing this month in November is a Jerome Robbins retrospective. Wow. Uh, and oh, so okay. I, I thought that that was really wonderful. And wow. uh so uh, I did not get a chance to um, – it was sort of a, a work trip, and uh, I brought my family. Oh. I, uh, my family oh. came along uh, as well. Um, and so I was, wor- I was only there for five days, and, mm-hmm. um, and so we did some tourist things, but I, I was actually working a lot as, as well as, as being there. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was really wonderful, and uh, Paris is a beautiful, beautiful international mm-hmm. city. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. – 
Let's get into our uh, review section. First up in the reviews, uh, Peter, you saw Catch as Catch Can at the New Ohio Theater. So tell us about this. Well, this has one week to go, and I would urge you to get there. Um, this is a play by Mia Chung, and it reminded me of Lagos Agri's statement in The Art of Dramatic Writing. And anybody who wants to be a playwright should read Lagos Agri, E-G-R-I, The Art of Dramatic Writing, where he points out in one section, a good playwright is also a good stenographer. <laughs> and what he means is that you take down dialogue from people and make it the way it sounds in real life. <laughs> Mia Chung has done this extraordinarily well, especially in the first act, where it's simply people getting together uh, for a holiday meal. The whole family is coming over. And uh, in fact, two families are coming over, the Phelans and the Lavecchias. And um, so you have the Irish-Italian thing. And this takes place in the Boston area. Uh, there are a lot of allusions to uh, Boston places and uh, the Red Sox, etc. And simply what it is, is people getting ready for this party and um, secrets do come out. But really, you would swear that all she did was take a tape recorder to one of these uh, gatherings and just record what was going on. It's really remarkable. I don't think I, that diminishes what she's done, and I don't want to do that. But it really is tremendously funny and effective in the first act and then the second act same thing smart dialogue but gets very very serious um it's it's a hairpin turn for this play but what's astonishing is that you go along for the ride very easily you do want to see what happens to these people and when bad things happen to these people you're not the least bit surprised because there's so much subtext in the earliest part of the play that you say oh oh yeah the chickens will come home to roost on this one so now uh two very very fine people are in here um, that we've seen before, and that's Michael Esper and Janine Sorales. Uh, Jeff Beale was less known to me. Now, you may be saying, wait, 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 you're telling me this is about two families and we have three actors here? Is that what you're telling me? Well, um, <laughs> the thing is, it's very um, <laughs> compelling at, or in, in the first moments of the play when um, ostensibly two gays guys are talking. They're very, very effeminate. And one points out um, about the other's hairdo. And Jeff Beale is bald. I'm pretty much bald. And you're thinking, why didn't they cast an actor with hair if that's part of the dialogue? Well, the thing is, in this play, the men play the women, too. And the women play the men, too. So uh, it's very uh, gender fluid, needless to say. So they were two women. They weren't two gay guys. They were two women in the first scene. And uh, that sets the tone. And you eventually pick up on that. Of course, if you're listening here and you do go, you don't have to pick up on it. You've heard it here first. But uh, seeing them go back and forth with the slightest bit, sometimes they even talk to themselves, um, meaning two people talk, but uh, one person is doing the talking. But you really get into the rhythm of it very, very quickly. Now, one may say that, of course, uh, this was um, to save money on salaries. It may be. It may have been Mia Chung's original concept. It may have been director Ken Rush Schmoll who decided to do this. I don't know. But whatever the case, it works wonderfully well. So try to catch, catch as catch can before it ends next Sunday. Okay, so that's uh, Catch as Catch Can at, the, at New Ohio Theater down on Christopher Street, um, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Michael, 
Um, mm. You and I both got a chance to see Torch Song. Peter reported on that last week. Uh, so tell us, what do you think of Torch Song? Well, I'm very happy to report that I enjoyed it much more than when I saw it off-Broadway last season with the same exact cast in the same exact production <laughs> um, in a theater uh, about two blocks away. This is the uh, second stage production of Torch Song, and now called, I guess officially now called Harvey Firestein's Torch Song, uh, uh, originally called Torch Song Trilogy, uh, when these three one-act plays were put together back in the 1980, 81, 82, somewhere around there. Um and became a landmark in gay theater. Uh, this my chief uh, problems with this production when I saw it off Broadway, as I mentioned last week, was that I felt that almost everyone in it was miscast and that it was very poorly directed. Uh, but somehow, um, I feel like some of those issues have been addressed. My my main I- issue with the show, I guess, uh, and it is a big one, uh, was that I felt when I saw it off Broadway that Michael Yuri was was so miscast in the leading role of Arnold Beckhoff that I could never really buy into the play. And since it's a huge role and he is the central character, that is obviously going to be an issue. Uh, when I saw it off Broadway, I felt that he was. Uh, not at all credible as a New York Jew, uh, a, a, a you know a born and raised New York Jew, circa the seventies. Uh, Harvey Firestein wrote this play as a vehicle for himself originally. These plays, uh, and he is a, as we all know, a, a very very specific type. And uh, there were references in the script originally to his uh, his physical appearance, his weight, his size. Uh, and his voice, his vocal delivery, which is extremely unique, as we all know. Um, so uh, I thought when I saw the show off Broadway that Michael's uh, New York accent was really not cutting it at all. And then that just kind of wrecked everything for me. I, I feel like he has worked on it tremendously in the meantime. And I, uh, although it, uh, I don't think his accent is perfect now, I think it's close enough that I can lose myself in the story and really buy into the the characters uh, and the character relationships. I, I have always said and said even last season that I, I do think Michael is one of our most talented actors. Uh, initially, I thought that this role was beyond him and not for him. But now I think that he has worked on it to the point where his incredible talents as a comedian and a dramatic dramatic actor uh, are, do come to the fore. And he does seem like he's this character, even if the character is quite different uh, than when it was played by Harvey Firestein and some other uh, people that I, that I've seen before uh, the, the text uh Initially, when the show was done off Broadway, had had been only slightly edited, I felt, and and uh, it it also uh, still included some re- references that clearly uh, did not apply to Michael Yuri, uh, and some of those references still remain, including uh, a reference to the fact that uh, how how should we say that uh, Arnold is supposed to be a full figure girl? Uh, <laughs> he's supposed to be a large 
rather heavy person. Uh, why that line has remained is beyond me. Uh, another line has been cut. Initially, uh, Arnold had a line about how if he uh, if he stopped, uh, if he changed career and if he was no longer a drag queen, uh, maybe he could drive a cab for a living. Now, that is a reference to the fact that back in the day, there used to be a lot of New York cab drivers who were native New Yorkers, middle-aged and older guys who talked like this, which is how sort of how Harvey Firestein talked in the original production. Um, that line is gone now, and I don't know if it was cut uh, because uh, it was wisely felt that it doesn't necessarily apply to Michael, or if it's or if they felt that that line doesn't make sense to modern day audiences. Because I would say that nowadays uh, a, a tiny percentage of cab drivers are native New Yorkers uh, uh, of that type. So anyway, I, I did notice that, um, and. Uh, I, 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 I'm told that there is a new edition of the play that actually prints uh, the original full script along with the, uh, the new one, the new version, which the edited version, which is now, you know, just called Torch Song or Harvey Firestein's Torch Song. And I'm told that that edition also has notes uh, by Harvey as to what he edited and why. So I'm really curious to get um, my hands on that because I, I, there are some edits that I don't understand. Another line uh, that was cut, and I, and I don't know why. This one I really liked. Uh, at one point, uh, Arnold is, is, winds up in extreme conflict with his mother, played beautifully by Mercedes Rule. And he says, and Arnold says to Ed, I believe at one point, uh, what I, I'd like to make her understand is that all I want is her life. And then originally he had a line right after that saying, with a few minor differences, or uh, that's not the line verbatim. I, I tried to find it uh, on, online. I couldn't find it, but that's that's the point of it. Well, now all he says is, uh, all I want is her life and, and doesn't add with a few minor differences, which I thought was a sweet line because what it meant is that he wants uh, – a lot of the basics that she had in her life, uh, you know, a, a long-term relationship with a loving partner, et cetera. But obviously there are going to be <laughs> some differences in, in their relationship because he's an openly gay man, uh, et cetera. So I don't know why that was cut. Um, I, uh, I, I, I do want to get a hold of that edition and see the, the uh, notes that Harvey wrote on why he cut what. Uh, um, the I, I still have my problems with Moises Kaufman as a director, but it just seemed like the whole thing worked a lot better this time. Um, the role of Ed, played by Ward Horton, I thought Ward Horton was far superior uh, on Broadway than when I saw him off. I, I, I thought uh, last year I felt that he just was completely on the surface of the character through the entire show and and he but he also seems to have worked greatly uh, and very diligently to uh, show the a little more depth to this character and, and bravo to him for that um, oh another line that that should have been cut and uh, is not do not ask me why the role of uh, Arnold's 
younger lover, Alan, is played by Michael Sue Rosen, uh, and who who I would say, it's fair to say, has a a fairly ethnic look about him. But for some reason, uh, Alan is supposed to be a model. And at one point uh, he says, you know, uh, I came in and, uh, you know, to New York and I started modeling, uh, you know, working for trying to sell anything you can sell with an all-American puss. Um, he does not look like he does not look all American in the phrase that that is used and certainly not in, in the way that phrase was used in the in 1980. So I don't know why that line was left, especially since it's not necessary um, and especially not necessary if it doesn't apply to the actor. So I no reason not to cast this role with with someone uh, who of color or someone who uh, looks non-All-American, but then just cut the line. Uh, don't know why that stayed there. Uh, it seems like Harvey was reluctant to cut lines unless he felt he absolutely had to. Uh, so there again, I have to get a copy of that script. Um, uh, th- uh, that's, I guess, all, mostly what I have to say about Tor's song. I, I can now recommend it uh, to all of our listeners. Uh, there is a, there's one performance in it that I think is is fairly disastrous unfortunately but i it's in a relatively small role and i i think i'd I'd rather not name the person but um much much of it is very very good and michael yuri is as i say deserves all credit for obviously putting his nose to the grindstone and really getting this character under his belt so um in comparison to the second stage production, which uh, we saw um, mm. uh, six, nine months ago or so, I, when was it? Probably last year. Last Probably year? About a year ago. year ago but, now? About, I so. Yeah, I think so, yeah, because they, they uh, it was announced for Broadway um, f- uh, far in advance of it actually happening. I remember yeah, that. That's right, yeah. Mm. That's right. And then they had to do the uh, construction at the Hayes uh, with mm-hmm. uh, moving mm-hmm. the wall. So um, I, I rather liked it better at second stage than I liked it. I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it at the Hayes. But I, uh, so help me out here. Um, at second stage, was the set slightly different? Uh, I, I sort of remember lots of things being on platforms, high platforms, but I might be misremembering. But uh, it really – but – Certainly, I, I feel as though the difference was was that uh, we were in the haze looking up at the production, whereas in second stage we mm. were looking down in that stadium style seating that I, I, I rather mm-hmm. enjoy at the. Uh, well, I do too. Yeah. At, at second stage, uh, regardless, these are extraordinary actors and an extraordinary story. Uh, I didn't have so many quibbles as much as uh, Michael did with some of these some of these lines. Uh, I'm a little bit more forgiving. Uh, of letting them pass by. One thing I, I did, uh, uh, we talked, uh, uh, my, my wife and I talked a little bit about uh, the, the weight issue that mm. Michael had brought up. And, and it's very funny because uh, uh, I, I saw something uh, <laughs> a few months back on Facebook that might apply here. And uh, the thing was, was that we all wish we were as thin as when we thought we were heavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, and I think that that might oh, yeah. apply to the the Michael Yuri line there. That uh, you know, he he might think of himself as heavy, even though he's thin as a rail. Oh yeah, no, yeah. but it's somebody else who says it about him. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. 
yeah, but, yeah. So yeah, I, I I see your point now. I didn't. I, I misunderstood what you had said earlier. Then, so that makes total sense. Absolutely, uh, but I thought that was very interesting um, because we, we we were talking about uh, we were talking about how beautiful and in shape everybody on that stage is, you know. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it, it's such a an interesting thing about how we all perceive ourself and, sure. and that uh, <laughs> you know, we all look at ourselves uh, pictures ten, fifteen, twenty years ago and we're like. Oh, I was I was so I was so good then, Cute. you know. <laughs> so <laughs> we all have to uh, do a little therapy now and then, which theater is a lot of therapy. So uh, it sure is. It sure is. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so this torch song, um, I, I it is scheduled to run through February twenty fourth. Uh, I'm interested to see. Uh, if Michael Yuri makes the breakthrough and is going to get a Tony nomination here, if not a you know some sort of uh, award here, uh, I think that this is a, a really good uh, piece of theater for people to come see, um, and that if you have missed it at Second Stage, now is your opportunity to get it in a in a larger theater, uh, and uh, it's playing for you know three four five months or so and hopefully uh i don't know is there something scheduled behind it that we is coming next into the haze that would prevent this from extending do you know anything i imagine so i imagine so they seem to have uh, a season planned i i can't say i know exactly what that is but uh i'm sure that they do have something coming in so uh yeah, so Torch Song is uh, high on my recommendation list when people say to me, what are we going to see, what, what should we see in New York? And, uh, you know, that's the next thing to do. So next up in our review section, Peter, you got down to the Dower Roth Theater in Union Square and saw Gloria a Life. So tell us about Gloria. Well, Gloria is about Gloria Steinem, and uh, if I may editorialize here, how many phone calls have I been on in my life? Um, 10,000, 20,000, who knows? But I will tell you, the phone call I had with Gloria Steinem in 1979 still ranks as the best phone call I have ever had with anybody. I have never felt that I was listened to as carefully, that everything I was saying was not, I don't mean this in a negative sense, it was being dissected in the worst sense of the word, but was appreciated in the best sense of the word, that she wanted to make sure that she understood fully what I was saying so that she could give a, a fully intelligent response to it. And I, I've never felt as galvanized by any phone conversation. So while we have never met face to face, I was certainly interested in this and certainly interested because Emily Mann, the McCarter Theater um, artistic director who's been there since 1991, and I've seen most of her production since 1993, um, is certainly a favorite of mine. So I was very interested to see what was going on here. I thought it was going to be a one woman show it certainly isn't it certainly isn't at all there are one two three four five um other perform uh no four other performers no no sorry god i'm gonna get this right finally a half dozen other performers <laughs> um who play various roles including um, some significant people that we recognize like bella abzug um and that uh that's played by Joanna Glushak, um, an actress um, I always enjoy, and uh, this was no exception. And um, and people that were newer to me, like De Delana Studi, who played Wilma Mankiller, who uh, was the first person in the Cherokee Nation to be uh, – 
principal chief. And what was interesting about that, too, by the way, was that um, she pointed out that in the Cherokee uh, nation, no pronouns are used. There's no he or she. Everybody's equal. They just have one pronoun for both sexes. And I, I, I found that uh, pretty illuminating. But, of course, the main event is Gloria Steinem. And Christine Lottie is sensational as Gloria Steinem. She rather looks like her, um, but she certainly has her style and spirit. And what's nice about this play is that I think it gives hope to people who are late bloomers because – Funny, you have to be 35 years old to be president of the United States. That's a rule. Um, Gloria Steinem was 35 when she started um, understanding and appreciating feminism and really almost fell into it and uh, started becoming an activist. It wasn't something that she planned all along. She uh, planned early on to be in the arts, then in journalism, and was a journalist for a while. And in fact even um, did a famous story about going undercover as a Playboy bunny, uh, something that we all assume has <laughs> disappeared. But in the play, it points out there's now another Playboy club in New York. I didn't know that. So um, so there's still work to be done, obviously. <clears throat> so yes, it's, um, it's, it's certainly uh, her life, but the life takes a lot of uh, turns that you don't expect, which is always great in a play, of course. And to find out that she had this very meager upbringing in Toledo, Ohio, and never thought that she'd become what she became, shows that there is uh, hope for all of us to become far more than uh, we become. I never get it right. I always get this quotation wrong, but it's something like, um, we never know how tall we are till we are called to rise. Emily Dickinson said something like that. I know that's not the quotation, but it applies here because here was a woman who really didn't have this is her goal and so it's good to see other people um, who have who fell into this as well um, Patrina Murray plays Florence Kennedy who became a black activist and there are also many projections in the show that remind us of people like Fannie Lou Hamer who again didn't have this in her um, DNA uh, she thought but it turned out she did um, <clears throat> Uh, yeah, let me also say that there was a book some uh, years ago called The Thousand Greatest People in History. And at the end, they said, here are five people we just couldn't put on. We, we came cl so close to putting them on, but we just couldn't. But we just want to put them in as also rands. And one of them was John F. Kennedy. And one who made the list, and this won't surprise you, was Rosa Parks, who's also mentioned in the show. That won't surprise you. And when those two people were growing up, did... <laughs> did Rosa Parks ever think she would be on a list of the thousand greatest people ever? And did John Kennedy? Probably, probably, considering the family he came from and the way he was groomed to be uh, certainly a, a statesperson, if not president of the United States, which, of course, he achieved. So, so you never know. And that's what's so inspiring about Gloria. It makes you a better person uh, for hearing her story that you go out and you say, I can do it, too. And when theater is that inspiring, that's pretty special. Well, what's that other line, Peter? Uh, some are born great, some achieve sure. greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Yeah, you know, what's funny about that quotation, um, uh, the Shakespeare quotation, is we always – well, we would – at least I did. Um, it, when I first heard <laughs> their quotation from Shakespeare, I said, well, it's got to be you know, like from Henry V or you know, Henry VI. Or, you know, I mean, it's got to be from one of those history plays. <laughs> it's not. It's not at all. It's from Twelfth Night. So that's <laughs> kind of funny you know, because you do, you, it's such a lofty quotation, and Twelfth Night is um, a, a comedy and sometimes very – silly but uh, there it is so uh, so most interesting 
Peter, a question about Gloria when you went, and it, this might not be accurate because you probably early in the run and at a critic's performance, uh, what was the uh, audience like? Well, in fact, I did go very late. I only went last Sunday, and so therefore they were, quote-unquote, you should pardon the expression, real, <laughs> real people there. Sure. And um, boy, did they respond. Um, I did wind up counting the men. I remember it happened because um, when I went in, there was a guy going in before me, and he said to the ticket taker, am I going to be the only guy here? You know, And no, uh, while, of course, it was a predominantly female audience, um, I would say men were 10% of it, and that's that's pretty good for this type of thing. And uh, they were applauding and really responding uh, when um, Gloria Steinem would say things about equality. So it was nice to see that, too. She may have been preaching to the converted, I'll grant you, but I'm sure there were plenty of husbands who are going to go because the wife says, come on, I want to see this. Let's go. And um, I think it will be worthwhile for those uh, men who aren't inclined uh, to applaud this as they come in. I hope that they're applauding and think about uh, what's going on when they leave. I wasn't really asking about the male-female ratio as much as uh, how full the house was because this is an open-ended run, and uh, uh, and that's the Dowroth Theater. So I'm I'm wondering if uh, we felt like this would, if this is going to be a long a long stayer there. And it, it's interesting that you brought up the uh, women versus men that I sure. hadn't even thought okay. of because uh, one of the things that Torch Song uh, last week was that. Uh, the intermission was extraordinarily long because uh, the, the huge line of <laughs> the men's bathroom, yeah, right. yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> which is really strange, you know, I given that it wasn't as long as the men's room's line at Follies at Paper Mill. But anyway, that's another. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, no, I, uh, let me also point out the configuration is uh, not unlike Circle in the Square. Mm. Uh, so it's that type of oval. And um, you don't get real theater seats. Um, there are bleacher type things, though they do give you uh, cushions, uh, which you can use either on your back or on your gluteus maximus. But um, <clears throat> it was almost sold out. And uh, I'm terrible at estimating how many seats a place um, holds, but uh, 200 maybe. And um, I would say that there were only... A, Really, I, I doubt that there were 15 seats that were empty. So uh, the fact that this was running already a month may indicate that word of mouth is very good on this. And that's why uh, the house was pretty much uh, sold out. And it was a Sunday evening, which after all wow. becomes a school night, you know, and uh, a lot of people stay home on Sunday evenings. But they were there. All right. So uh, next up in our review section, uh, Peter and Michael both got a chance to see Days of Rage at the Second Stage Theater, uh, uh, the one in Midtown. Uh, so, Michael, why don't you start us off with Days of Rage? Days of Rage, new play by Stephen Levinson, who many of our listeners will know as the author of the book of Dear Evan Hansen. And it's directed by Trip Coleman. Uh, the cast consists of Mike Feist, Tavi Jevonson, J. Alphonse Nicholson, Lauren Patton, and Odessa Young. Uh, and I'm sorry, did I say directed by Trip Coleman? Uh, at uh, the Tony Kaiser Theater, uh, Second Stage's uh, off-Broadway space where they were for years before they uh, finally added the Hayes and now have a, a Broadway presence. And in fact, I saw uh, this week I saw Tort Song uh, one night and Days of Rage the next, so I had a very second stage week. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say this is a, a worthy play uh, that for me... Uh, well, it's about the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society. 
which uh, was an activist organization in the 60s, uh, primarily formed to protest the Vietnam War, although they had other issues as well. Uh, the setting of this play is specifically October 1969, uh, and it says a ramshackle old house in upstate New York. Uh, at one or two points, it's mentioned that they are in or near Ithaca, where, of course, there there is a uh, you know, it's a big college town. Uh, and so uh, several of the characters are, are college students and they are in the SDS. And uh, there is a lot of talk as to what types of demonstrations they're going to have and whether or not violence is going to be involved. And that, of course, is a tremendous hot point in their discussion. Uh, I found all of that extremely interesting whenever the characters were talking about that. This play, to me, oddly, spent a tremendous amount of time on other things, uh, mostly the romantic and sexual involvements uh, within the, uh, the house where, where, the, you know, where these students are living. And I, I mean, I certainly understand why some of that should be and needs to be there. We don't want them to be discussing politics at every moment. But I just felt there was so much of it that it, it, it quite soon got very boring to me. Um, and I'm surprised that uh, Stephen Levinson made that mistake. Uh, I, I view it as a mistake. Uh, so I appreciated the uh, the subject matter and that that the playwright dealt with it, and I was very much gripped by the political discussions, the um, you know the the, uh, the the discussions as to whether violence is ever justified, uh, you know the end whether the end ever justifies the means if we're talking about violence as the means, but I uh, I just thought there was too much of the other stuff. And I, I think the play was weaker for that reason. All right. Peter, what'd you think? Gee, the sex talk was fine with me, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> no, uh, we were all young back then. You know, we were interested in that. And this is a commune. And uh, they're very proud of the fact that they can sleep with each other. And uh, nobody's supposed to get jealous. Easier said than done, needless to say. And that certainly comes up during the play, too. Because people just naturally assume that the people they're sleeping with tonight are going to be interested tomorrow. Whether or not the rules say you can do whatever you want, uh, there's a... We human beings are rather territorial. So, um, and yeah, uh, there's a reason they were called the swinging 60s, you know, um, because indeed people were swinging then, especially young people and uh, perhaps only young people. Uh, but uh, but they certainly made the most of their opportunities. Uh, the famous expression at the time was use it or lose it. And uh, while I don't think you would lose it when you were a kid, um, <laughs> if you didn't use it, uh, the fact remains that that was enough uh, to give people permission to go ahead and use it and use it quite a bit. So so I'm, I'm, I'm not with Michael on that, but I am with Michael on the fact that uh, this really did a very good job, a very good job of showing us what it was like in those days when there were protesting young people who um, certainly had lofty goals. And some, of course, in the play, and this, this is a good orchestration of character, some are more into it than others. Some are, are willing to risk everything. Some are willing to risk almost everything. Um, what's really nice about the play is the fact that there's a very surprising ending. Uh, it's beautifully set up. 
you wouldn't think anything of as well. You know, that's the the great thing when when uh, somebody mentions something offhand and you don't think anything of it, and then it turns out to be extraordinarily important. You hit your head and say, "Oh, I should have seen that coming." Um, I don't. I don't think you should have seen this coming. Uh, the surprise ending, but uh, but it's it's quite quite fine, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of the actual plot, what happens is the young woman. Uh, comes into the house um, and wants to be the greatest radical of them all. I mean, she is hell-bent to make everything happen. And they're planning, by the way, to go to the Chicago Convention, which in 68 really was uh, a disaster for everybody, I'm sorry to say. And um, and we know that if they do wind up going, that they may very well um, wind up in terrible circumstances, as so many did um, in that terrible convention so uh but she uh, is just um reckless beyond belief and she's so reckless that she makes everybody else take pause on what they're doing the play also points out that if you're going to do this type of protesting you do have to worry and wonder about what the uh, real lawmakers in the land the fbi and uh policemen etc are going to be doing to you be it just watching you you're always suspicious in fact this person who comes into the house uh, the Tabby Gevinson plays Peggy, um, indeed is suspected of, uh, from time to time, of really being a plant, that uh, she's there just to um, to get them uh, caught. And will that happen? Well, again, I say there's a surprise ending, so maybe that's the surprise. I'm being purposely oblique because I want you to see the play. I think it's terrific. And while my buddy Bert Silverberg told me long ago, he lives in Rhode Island, that this Stephen Levinson, when he was at Brown, was doing terrific work. Uh, he certainly turns out to be doing terrific work because um, I think this is, we certainly know now that Stephen Levinson is not a one-hit wonder because he's got two hits, and I look forward to the third. Okay. So that is Days of Rage, Days of Rage at the Second Stage Theater in Midtown, uh, and it's playing through November 25th, so you have a few weeks to check it out. Uh, Peter, you got a chance to see Charlie's Aunt at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, so tell us about Charlie's Aunt. Well, you know, this was a play that used to be done all the time. Um, and uh, what it is, it takes place way back when, um, and it takes place um, in Oxford uh, in England, uh, dealing with students. And in those days, you had to have a chaperone uh, when um, young men and women got together. And Charlie's aunt is going to be the chaperone. She's going to come from Brazil, and uh, but then she cannot. So the boys um, get their friend to dress up as um, as Charlie's aunt and uh, try to palm her off as the chaperone. Those who know the musical Where's Charlie will say, no, 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 you got it wrong. Um, Charlie pretends to be uh, the aunt. Well, yes, in the musical, that is the case, but in the play, it's not. They do encourage uh, uh, their friend, um, Lord Baberly, a fan court Baberly, to uh, do the, the honors, so to speak. Now, um, it was directed by Joseph Disher, who is one of my favorite directors out there, but I think he made a mistake on this one. And one of the reasons I think there's a mistake is the play is awfully long, and it could be cut very, very easily. Now, usually when we say plays can be cut, you're talking about a line here, a line there, you know, maybe, maybe even a scene. And don't forget, Brandon Thomas wrote this play a long time ago, so I dare say it's in the public domain. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I think it's in the public domain. I think you can do whatever you want. And the problem with the play more than anything else is that every now and then, far too often, in fact, 
People turn directly to the audience and deliver asides. They have something that they have to say that they feel if they do not say it, we will not understand it. For example, John Aleen, an actor I admire tremendously uh, much, uh, playing one of the fathers, turns and says, what a cruel interruption. We were getting along so nicely. Do we really need to hear that? Couldn't we see that they were getting along so nicely? Of course we could. And almost every aside is giving us information that we already know. Now, of course, part of the fun of Charlie's Aunt, if you find it fun, um, is the fact that the audience is smarter than the characters. Because we can see with no problem at all that... Uh, Charlie's aunt is no aunt at all and no woman at all. And that's another problem I think Joe Disha should have um, addressed. And again, it's true of Where's Charlie, too. If you can see the movie and it's not easy to see, but it is, it, it, there are certainly black market copies running around. Uh, Ray Bulger is not remotely convincing as a woman. And I would love to see a production of Where's Charlie where the person actually is convincing as a woman so that we don't have less uh, respect for the people's intelligence, the two women's intelligence, um, or anybody else's for that matter. So I think that those things really do in any production of Where's Charlie or Charlie's Aunt. But Charlie's Aunt has a bigger problem with those asides. And, oh, what a streamlined production it would have been. It certainly wouldn't have taken almost three hours to see this play if those asides would drop. So if anybody's considering Charlie's aunt, please consider dropping the asides and please make your leading man, so to speak, um, someone who's convincingly female. That's interesting. I uh, One of my roles in high school was Spedigue in the musical Where's Charlie? And actually, I, I was aware of this production of Charlie's Aunt. Somebody mentioned it. Uh, a, f a, f a friend of mine who was in that production with me, uh, uh, the high school production, said that, you know, they're actually doing Charlie's Aunt. We really should go see it. And I said, you're right, we should, because when will we ever get a chance to see it again? And one could certainly argue, uh, and I'm sure Peter would agree, that that it's good to see it uncut just to, for historical purposes, mm -hmm. even though even though it would absolutely, I'm sure uh, you're right, that it would work better with the edits. All right. So that is uh, Charlie's Aunt at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey. It is playing through November 17th, so you still have a few days to check it out if you'd like. Uh, Michael, you got over to Wagner College to uh, see the completely student productions production of Spring Awakening. Uh, and this is was was it not held in a traditional theater? Or tell us about this. It wasn't. Uh, it was presented by. Uh, a group called Completely Student Productions, and that can be taken at face value. Everyone involved in the production is a student, uh, the director, producer, uh, every, everyone on every level. And they do uh, – one of the alternate theater spaces at Wagner is actually – it's just a lounge, a student lounge in a dorm. Uh, and they set it up uh, – the, the Two shows I've seen there, they set it up in a modified three-quarter thrust situation, so the audience is on three sides. Um, the The only other show I saw in that space was Assassins, uh, Sondheim and Weidman's Assassins uh, last year, I believe. Uh, but now they did Spring Awakening, and it really requires a lot of ingenuity because they have to uh, – there are no wings, uh, so they have to create wings if they, if they, if they want to. Uh, Usually they people walking off and or behind curtains or things like that, and um, the lighting is uh, tends to be ba very basic. Uh, this this uh, production had an extra 
um, frisson to it because the intermission happened and it was going on and it was going on and then it turned out the uh, the, the lighting board had gone out. I don't know what happened. So uh, they they said they you know we really apologize, ladies and gentlemen, but we'll, you know we'll have to start with uh, just basically using the 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 house lights for the most part. Um, but then, uh, somewhere in like the second scene of, of act two, the, the board came back. I don't know. I guess they rebooted it and the, the power came back. I don't know. And so that, so it, uh, continued and that was wonderful. It was a really, really moving production spring awakening. Um, for those who know it, you can only imagine, uh, how, devastating and how uh, um, moving it is when performed by people who are actually the ages of the characters as it was the uh, the two Broadway productions that I saw had extremely young cast uh, but but even there I, I would say you know probably most of the people were maybe 10 year of 10 years or uh, at least five years older than they're supposed to be here we have pretty much the exact ages um, and that made a tremendous difference the the cast was superb across the board um, have to mention Matthew Drinkwater as Melchior and uh, the show was uh, uh, this, uh, oh, yeah, of course, it's music by Duncan Sheik, book and lyrics by Stephen Sater, and the director choreographer was Robert Gallo. Uh, and it, yeah, it, it's it's great to see the show in that context, and also to reflect on how relevant this this musical is, even though it's based on a, a play that's well over a hundred years old, one hundred twenty nine years ago uh, this play was first produced can you imagine by frank wedekin produced in germany and uh it's it's incredible that uh, i'm so glad that stephen Sater and duncan sheik brought it forward to modern day by making it into a musical uh the the subject matter re- remains uh, sadly pertinent and um you know, they keep talking about a movie version of this musical, which I hope happens because I think it might make a fantastic movie. Uh, in the meantime, uh, people st- still keep doing it on stage. In fact, I think it's next up uh, at the Argyle Theater. I'm I'm headed to the Argyle today, the Argyle in Babylon, Long Island. I'm headed there today to see Hunchback of Notre Dame, but they are doing Spring Awakening uh, coming up. So that's someplace you can catch it if you like. The Wagner one, unfortunately, was only two days uh, today, uh, Sunday the 11th being the last day. So I'm afraid you missed it. But I'm really, really glad I was there. Wow. That's... Uh... That's really great, and you continue to be the ambassador to Staten Island for us. Is, uh, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> well, uh, perhaps um, you should see if uh, uh, you can put together a kind of a schedule of things coming up in the spring so we can alert people before since they seem to be one and two weekend things so we could uh, let people get out there before we're talking about them very, uh, very often. Uh, some of the feedback listeners give us is that you're telling us about stuff that we can't get to. So try to tell us about the stuff we can get to before it happens. That's a, that's a, that's a tricky line to walk because uh, sure. we might tell you about stuff that's terrible. You know, <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Uh, at the end of this month, they uh, this they're doing a uh, black box production of Everybody. 
uh, that Everyman uh, um, take yeah. that was done just recently, uh, like uh, off Broadway at uh, Signature, and they in the spring the big musical in the spring is Pirates of Penzance. So those are the two things at Wagner that you can, uh, you know, well I'll, I'll be sure to give heads ups on those. I hate to jinx anything, but you can't really screw up pirates. It's such a wonderful play, <laughs> you know. And I I hate to jinx anything because certainly, um, you know. You can screw it up, but, you know, Pirates is such a fun show. And uh, so get out there and do that. Uh, Michael, you also got a chance to see Tosca at the Metropolitan Opera. So tell us what's happening with Tosca. Yeah, I wanted to mention it because, uh, uh, first of all, because it's such a wonderful production uh, with an interesting history, but also because it applies to uh, Bernhardt Hamlet, which is still playing on Broadway has another week left. Uh, Tosca, the original play was written by Victorian Sardou, a French playwright. And and James, uh, you were just in in Paris. Uh, Tosca, La Tosca, premiered on uh, November 24th, 1887 at the Théâtre de la Porte Saint-Martin in Paris, uh, which is a theater which still exists. And um, Bernhardt was the star at the premiere. Uh, uh, I think she only briefly mentions Tosca in Bernhardt's Hamlet, but still there is that connection. And the Met production, the current Met production is beautiful. The history, uh, just in a nutshell, um, the Met had for decades a beautiful production of the opera that was directed and designed by Franco Zeffirelli that premiered in 1985, and that played for over 20 years. It was replaced uh, with a production by Luc Bondi, directed by Luc Bondi, that was so hated that it was actually – the production staff was actually booed during the Kurt calls on opening night. Uh, I That night has become legendary for the vociferousness of the boos. Uh, I, was, I was not there. Um, and that production lasted less than 10 years. Uh, last, uh, last year, uh, the Met premiered a beautiful new production um, I, that – to me is designed very much along the lines of the Zeffirelli production uh, directed by Sir David McVicker set and costume design, John McFarlane lighting design, David Finn. Um, and this is a, it is a really beautiful production. Uh, so I urge you to go see it because it was new last year and not this year. It's not completely selling out. It probably won't be too difficult to get a ticket. And another reason you should see it now is that uh, Sandra Radvanovsky as Tosca is absolutely brilliant in terms of both her singing and her acting and also quite a beautiful woman. So she looks good in the costumes. So um, something to tell you about this Tosca is that um, at the Metropolitan Opera's beautiful website, they have uh, tickets starting from twenty dollars, so you can get into it. And also, um, the, the rush has, tickets that yeah. I meant. The rush tickets uh, every day, beginning at twelve, every night that there's a performance, you go on uh, the website and you can get uh, any unsold seat in the house for twenty five dollars, which is unbelievable. Uh, you do, you don't get to pick your seat; they could just give you one. But I've sat in the orchestra. Uh, 
uh, sort of rear orchestra the last two times for La Boheme and now for Tosca. And it's, um, I mean, you have to be diligent because hundreds of people are logging on at the same time and it might, you might not get it, but uh, you might. And if you do, then you, it's the, the best deal in New York. Um, can you go to the box office? No, uh, the rush tickets apparently used to be sold uh, on uh, online at the box office or on the phone. Now it's just online. I guess it was too unwieldy for them. Okay. And they did. I think maybe they didn't want people yeah. queuing up. You know. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, and um, aside from that, uh, the Metropolitan Opera's website will help you. Uh, ease into any opera anxiety that you might have of either being sung in a foreign language that you don't, this is done in Italian, that you might not know it. Um, and it'll really help you understand what you're about to go see as well as wonderful videos and things like that. And uh, something to help us get into our next topic is that these, um, this production of uh, Puccini's Tosca was uh, done in the Metropolitan Opera HD live streaming uh, so it is uh, available on various uh, platforms to watch perhaps before or after you go see it live and in person at the Metropolitan Opera House. So with uh, that little discussion of streaming here, Peter, uh, you would like to talk about um, a streaming musical, Emma, by Paul Gordon. So tell us about this. Yeah, there's a new uh, website, streamingmusicals.com, uh, which is starting out with Paul Gordon's adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. It's done in modern dress. It's uh, right up to date. And uh, it stars Kelly Barrett, who many people saw as Nessa Rose in Wicked, who far fewer people saw as Donnie in uh, the recent Getting the Band Back Together. She also played Leslie Gore uh, in Baby It's You. So uh, she's been around for a while and uh, does wonderful work here. The point is that um, (laughs) I don't know if it is HD, but I'll tell you, the D is pretty H uh, from what I can see. And uh, beautifully, beautifully done. Three cameras shoot the show. Um, It's not done with an audience, so it's a little odd um, to hear a song end and hear no applause whatsoever. So you sort of feel like you're at a dress rehearsal. But uh, believe me, you have a front row seat. In fact, you're actually on the stage, so to speak, because the close-ups are wonderful. The sound is magnificent. And what's wonderful, of course, is the sound wouldn't mean much if the score wasn't good, but it really is. A song called Relations has been sticking in my head since I saw this. So um, Paul Gordon, I think, really does wonderful work. I certainly enjoyed Jane Eyre and Daddy Longlegs for the scores, and uh, he doesn't disappoint here either. So find out about the streamingmusicals.com. You can also, if you care to, you can actually buy what you see uh, for $19.99, or you can rent it for far less, uh, and you you have three days to watch it should you care to uh, stagger it um, over a a 72-hour time frame. But really, I hope that this catches on. I hope we get far more shows. I mean, it's always so sad when a show closes and that's it, and I'm very glad that in recent years there's been such an effort to keep things alive uh, through tape and film, and of course that goes back to Betty Corwin, who was the first person to do this at, at the Lincoln Center Library. But uh, here's another uh, organization doing this. Um, and uh, God love Apple and Orange Studios for being one of the uh, producers that make it happen. It was, by the way, filmed at the West Side uh, Theater, where um, you uh, can um, now see the other Josh Cohen, which I highly recommend, but we'll talk about that another time. 
So this is, as Peter mentioned, you can buy Emma for $19.99 or rent it for $5.99 at streamingmusicals.com. And let me read you their, uh, their about us. Streaming Musicals is made up of a group of artists who want to make it easier for you to watch musicals and plays. We capture the magic of theater on film and bring it directly to all of your devices. We focus on storytelling, character, and music, and we do it because we love theater and want to share it with the world. And by watching on Streaming Musicals, you are actually supporting the artists artists who are creating the shows you're watching with our revolutionary new product sharing model. No subscriptions, just click and watch. Support theater and theater artists and watch their shows anywhere because now theater is everywhere. So um, we have seen uh, technology catch up with uh, theater in the last couple of years with a number of the uh, streaming services and uh, streaming events that we've talked about over the last couple of years. And this is the newest one, so check it out. I think it's really wonderful to uh, mm-hmm. to get that uh, the ability to see uh, in the comfort of your home as we get closer to mm. the cold season. You know, uh. as you know, sometimes it's tough to get out uh, oh, it sure when, it, is. when it when it's raining, and perhaps you're in France. And ah. anyway, <laughs> so. So that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of Broadway Radio. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we come to a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. Uh, Our Radio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Many places that carry finer podcasts you can listen to broadway radio contact information for peter for michael and for me uh can be found at broadway radio in the show notes as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about today including uh, the um, streaming musicals emma by paul gordon so peter do you have an answer for last week's trivia yeah i asked the three musicals that start with the letter m my fair lady Manila la mancha and molly all have something in common what uh, needless to say, I'm sure when people heard the first two, My Fair Lady and Man in La Mancha, they thought, uh, oh, Tony winners. But Molly certainly wasn't. Uh, that was a quick <laughs> failure. Um, no, all of them had logos by, by Al Hirschfeld, and that's what I was going for. Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Ingrid Gammerman and Robert Lobiondo. Jack Leshner, though, had a good point when he said that all three had a CBS connection because CBS financed My Fair Lady it broadcast the I Quixote Don uh, the I Don Quixote TV drama that inspired Men of La Mancha, and CBS broadcast the Goldbergs, the TV series which inspired Molly. So, uh, which nobody can deny. So Jack Leshner gets uh, credit too for answering the question correctly. Uh, more than one answer. All right, this week, the same opening number, although differently orchestrated, opened. Different musicals in 1952, 1956, 1962, and 1968. What's the name of the song and the names of the four shows that this same song opened? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia... This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley.
I think I 